this week I had an opportunity and was required to travel south, and I went to Memphis for a few days. And on my way there, when I got, uh, I got right about to Memphis where all the interstates start to come together, there's a lot of construction. And, and I don't know about you, but construction on the road is extremely frustrating. Traffic slows, and, and people slam on their brakes for no reason, and everybody turns into some crazy kind of driver when construction is there. And certainly you want to go a little slower, but you, you wind up, sometimes you get through a construction zone, and you think, what in the world was there such delay for? And people losing their minds and so on. And you see those signs, you know, minute work. And you just know, watch out and slow down, because there are people here who are we're working on a construction zone. And I was reading in the paper this, this week that uh, one of the main projects, in fact, uh, Judge Elkins says that it's the top priority is to finish 641 to the border, making it four lanes. And some of you, maybe you're looking forward to that being completed. Some of you travel that road quite a bit, heading south toward Paris, and, and you think, well, good, you know, and, and, uh, and you're, you're, you're looking forward to that. Others are thinking, oh, great. You know what that's going to do to that road? Ah, yeah, it'll be nice when it's done. But good grief, it's going to be a long time, and it's, it's going to be really a, a headache, and what a mess. Imagine the scene of people, you know, traveling back and forth, and it's going to be a mess before it's finished. Typically, that's the way that it is, chaos, and then it comes together. Road construction obviously seems like a complete mess, and you realize that a that, that they're repairing maybe something that's broken. You know that. Maybe they're preparing for the future. They're planning ahead, and they're going to widen or, or straighten or do something to this particular section of the road to make it better for the long run. You say, well, we don't even need all that now. But in the long run, we'll all appreciate it, I'm sure. I, I really think that, that just like we see those construction signs on the side of the road as you travel through a zone like that, as we may see here in the coming months and years on 641, I think all of us, we need a sign to carry around that just simply says, God at work. You wonder what's going on with me? You know, here, let me just, let me just show you. God at work. Now, that sounds really simple and cliche and almost sort of goofy, but I really believe that all of us need at least some way in our minds, or maybe you'd go make a t-shirt that just says, God at work, and you'd wear it around as a reminder to yourself and as a warning to other people that I'm not totally finished yet. God is still at work. We're starting a new series this morning in which we'll look at a character in the Old Testament that God was working on. And not only was he working on this person, but he was working through this person. We'll see in the life of a man named Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, I really believe it's a, it's a powerful story that has great implication for us today, and it covers a good portion of the book of Genesis, so there's got to be some importance to it. We'll see in his life how God worked on him, worked through him, and ultimately we'll realize that it wasn't so much a story about Joseph, and even a story about a man whose example we should follow, but it's ultimately a story about God. And a story about God at work in the life of Joseph, in the nation of Israel, and as we'll see still today in our lives and in our world. Now the tendency when you come across something like this, and my tendency honestly was first to jump into the study. Uh, Genesis 37 is the beginning of the story, and, and, and the first tendency, quite honestly, 
And if you got your Bible and you want to turn there, go right ahead. Genesis 37. The, the first tendency when you're, when you're looking at the Bible, or in my case, you're about to preach a, a particular passage or topic or person, is to go to where the story begins, or where they're first mentioned, or that truth is first seen, and just begin to work through the story. So, so my tendency is to go to Genesis chapter 37, verse 1, and start reading to you, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. And then begin the story in verse 2, at 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. I, I, I think, though, even, even though this is a series called Eight Ways God Builds Your Characters, we need to make it a nine-part series. Now, I'm not real good with math, okay, but I know that doesn't add up. Nine parts on an eight-week study, essentially. How does God build our character? We're going to learn that from the life of Joseph, but I honestly believe that unless we learn all the background information, or at least much of it, we'll not fully understand the story of Joseph. We'll simply look at it and try to draw parallels to our lives today, which is not the most immediate step we need to take when we study Scripture. When we study Scripture, and maybe this is a little bit of advice for you, certainly our first inclination is to look and say, what does this mean to me? How can I apply this in my life? Those are not bad questions, but they're not the first questions. The first question we need to learn is, what does it mean? Period. Not what does it mean to me? How can I shape this to fit my life? But what did God intend it to mean? And if you are, are understanding this, you know that Genesis 37 was not first written to us on January 22, 2012 in Murray, Kentucky, Callaway County in the United States. That was not the first audience. We are not the first people to receive this writing. Some of you are saying, well, that, that's good. Thank you for that information. Appreciate that. The first people to receive this are the first folks that would understand, what is God saying? What does he mean by this passage of Scripture? Why in Genesis? Why in chapters 37 to 50 do we have this long story of a man named Joseph? Why all the details about his life? What was the first audience to receive? Who were they? What was their situation? Until we learn those things, I'm not quite sure we can fully understand how it applies to our lives. So this morning, what I want to help us understand is not to begin a verse-by-verse -verse study of the life of Joseph yet. We'll start that next week. But what I hope to help us understand this week is who received this first? Why did they need to hear this story? And what difference did it make to them? I think then we can get our minds around, hmm, how do we line up with them? What's similar in our story to their story? Why do we need to hear this as well? Now, give you a little bit of background information. Moses, the great leader of Israel, is the writer of Genesis. Moses uh, took the time uh, during the, the time when the Israelites were roaming in the wilderness. You may, you may know the story there. Uh, they're... they're punished to be in the wilderness for 40 years, and they wander around and finally get to the promised land and so on. Moses, during that time, takes the opportunity to write down the history of the nation of Israel. So he writes the first five books of the Old Testament, including history and the law. So we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all written by Moses to the Israelites in the desert. Now think about that just for a second. The first group of people who were told these stories 
in this particular form or received this writing of the story were people who were wandering in the desert, having been punished by God, and hopefully one day making their way to a land that God had promised them. The person who wrote it was their revered leader, who's giving them this story to show them of the work of God and the history of their nation. So what he does in Genesis is he begins and he talks about the creation of the world and the origin of man and and all of these things in, in the first 11 chapters. And then he turns in chapter 12 to the story of a man named Abram, who later becomes Abraham, and we see his story. Moses lays out the promise of God in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, in giving the history. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, and the Lord, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. It's the beginning of the history of the nation of Israel. So they hear this story out in the wilderness. <laughs> They're told of God's promise. Imagine yourself there. Hearing the story of God's promise as you wonder if God's promise will come true. In the wilderness, the desert, the time when it seems God is silent. This is when they're receiving this history. Moses recounts, God told Abraham he'll make him into a great nation. The Israelites, I'm sure, in the wilderness thought they were anything but a great nation. In fact, God had told them that, that all the people who did not believe God, who had rejected His promise, they would die in the desert. Moses would go on to tell the story of Isaac and of Jacob. And in each of those instances, God reiterated the promises, the people in the wilderness hearing the promise over and over and over again. So Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons is Joseph, whose story we see in chapters 37 to 50. We see toward the end of Genesis, the numbers growing. We see the beginning of Exodus. The numbers are really substantial to the point that they could be called a nation. So they've settled in Egypt, and then the Egyptians get the idea that maybe the Israelites are a threat. And the government officials there and the Pharaohs say, well, let's make sure they're not a threat, but let's make sure we use their labor and they impress them into slavery. The Israelites in the desert would have remembered that time. As Moses recounts the story. And then he would, he would tell them of the plagues in Egypt. And God's plan to deliver them out of slavery. And remind them of the story of the Red Sea, the Exodus. And they probably in that time in the wilderness would have maybe smiled a little bit. Maybe recalled that time if some of them had heard the story or were around during that time. And then he would get to the time in the book of Numbers when their unbelief brought the judgment of God, the spies go into the land. Ten of them come back and say, no, 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 can't do it. <laughs> can't be done. It's impossible. You don't understand what we're up against. Two of them, men of faith, come back and say, look, yeah, it's a big deal. It's going to take some work. We're going to have to fight for this land. But God has promised us this is what he's giving us. Let's go. And they vote no. 
And God says, okay, all those who are not believing, you'll die in the desert. And so for 40 years, they wonder. For 40 years, they experience death and disillusionment and discouragement and confusion. But it's during that time when Moses writes this story as a reminder of God had been doing, God at work in their history. It's a, it's a very timely story to a people who maybe had wondered if God had forgotten them, if God was now despising them. You ever felt that way? You been there? Put yourself this morning in the position of those Israelites in the desert. Maybe you're in the desert by your own doing. You say, you know what? <laughs> it's my fault. I, the, the sins I've committed, the, the things that I've done, they've led me to this point. The Israelites could relate with that. Their unbelief led them to the desert. And even in the midst of that, though, they, they were discouraged. They said, well, you know, maybe I'm to blame. I still don't like it. wish this weren't the case. Maybe they were a little bit confused. God, yeah, we, we didn't believe you, but 40 years. Everybody has to die? God, that's kind of harsh. Maybe you're experiencing the ramifications of poor decisions, and yet you think, Lord, this is, this is too much. Maybe they were wondering if God had completely abandoned them. Maybe your wilderness is a little different, and you didn't specifically lead yourself there, but you're there right now, and you wonder, where's God? He promised he would never leave me or forsake me, and, and yet, <laughs> that's not what I feel like I'm experiencing. Where is he? Maybe they wondered if God had despised them, that God didn't like them anymore. Maybe you've been there. And you think, you know, yeah, I can trace it back. I know I'm a sinner, and I know I've messed up, but good grief. I just feel like God hates me. I just feel like his hand is just pushing down on me, just really heavy. If you can imagine or you've experienced any of those emotions, you can put yourself in the midst of the Israelites there in the wilderness. What a story this would be to receive when you feel like God despises you, when you feel like God is silent, when maybe you know you've messed up and created your own bed to lie in, so to speak. What a great story this would be. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think Moses knew what they needed at that moment. Certainly the Holy Spirit impressed upon him, inspired him to write these words, no question. But Moses, a wise leader, understood his people. And he said, this is what I need to include in the history. This is what they need to be reminded of. They needed a story of God's faithfulness, of God at work in his people, God fulfilling his promises. And so he writes the story of Genesis and the rest of the books of the law, and he tells them that God has been at work in spite of their failings. It's hard for us to understand. We have to take it in spiritual terms. We can't really take it in physical or relational terms. But when the Israelites in the desert received this story, because of their Jewish heritage, because of them being a part of the nation of Israel, they were physically connected to these other people. The promises that, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had received were promises 
for them as well. The mistakes that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the others had made were essentially vicariously lived out through people years later. They were connected to this. And so this was their history, not just some story. And in a spiritual sense, this is our spiritual history. Jesus himself came from the Jewish line. And as a result, we all are connected with this story in a spiritual sense. So Moses recounts to them, God has been faithful. He's been at work in spite of your failings. Genesis is a story. The nation's sin and unbelief. And even a glance at the story of Joseph reveals that that he's not perfect. He's a a high-character guy, but he's not perfect. We see his brothers. Maybe you're familiar with the story and you know his brothers hated him. Their failings would, would be overcome by the Lord's faithfulness. I want you to know this morning that maybe you've made your bed and you figure you have to lie in it. But not even your greatest failings, not even your greatest failings can match the faithfulness of God which overcomes it all. Some of us really need to be reminded of that truth this morning. Because maybe for years you've figured, well, I've just got to pay for all this. Maybe one day I'll pay it off and I'll be done with it. The story of Genesis begins the story that God's faithfulness overcomes every failing that we have. You fast forward to the New Testament and you see Jesus who trumps it all. Cancels the debt we owe to God. Cancels the penalty for our sin, the payment for our sin once and for all, and says, your failings will no longer be held against you because of Jesus Christ. The one through whom, in Genesis 12, fulfills the promise that through Abraham all nations would be blessed. That's Jesus. How are we blessed? (laughs) In spite of our failings, He is faithful. Moses writes the story that God is faithful to His people, to His promises, in spite of impossible circumstances. The story of Joseph begins in 37 here with his dreams about what he will be and what will happen in his life. And by the end of chapter 37, he's sold into slavery. Chapter 39, we pick up the story and he's wrongfully accused of a crime he never committed. And yet he's thrown into prison, paying for something he didn't even do. The story goes on and he's forgotten. (laughs) He's left there to rot in prison. Abandoned by everyone, forgotten it seems by all. Later on, there's a famine that happens in the land of Egypt. The Pharaoh has some dreams, Joseph interprets, and he tells him there's going to be a famine. The Pharaoh eventually puts Joseph in charge of everything. An amazing story. We have the golden boy going to be a slave, then to be a prisoner, then to serve at the right hand of Pharaoh. It doesn't even make sense, and yet God is faithful in spite of all the impossible circumstances. Your back may be against the wall. Relationally, maybe in your marriage, it's over. Maybe you say, there's, there's no hope whatsoever. They've told me it's over. I know it's over. I know there's no, there's no chance this is going to work out. God is the God of impossible circumstances. 
Joseph as a slave, as a prisoner, forgotten, hopeless, no way to see his dreams fulfilled. God working behind the scenes, as we'll see in the coming weeks, to prove his faithfulness in spite of impossible circumstances. Yours may not be a failing marriage, but it might be financially. Or maybe your job is in jeopardy. Or maybe you're facing some health issues and it seems there's no way really to overcome all of that. And maybe this morning, just like the Israelites in the desert, you need to be reminded that God is faithful and He is still in control in spite of impossible circumstances. In spite of their failings, in spite of impossible circumstances, and in spite of evil people, God was faithful. The story of Joseph is a classic story of jealousy and envy and hatred. Here he is, the favored son among the twelve. His dad loves him so much, and he decorates him with a coat that sets him apart from everyone else, and they hate him because of it. They conspire against him, his evil brothers, and they are the ones who have him sold into slavery. They're the ones who caused his eventual prison term. He faces the false accusation of an evil woman who accused him of some crimes that none of us would want to be associated with. Evil people sought to destroy the promises of God in the life of Joseph. Moses writes the story to let them know (laughs) even evil people cannot And will not thwart the plans of God. He also writes to let them know that even in spite of the fact that they didn't understand what God was up to, He was still faithful. You ever wonder, what in the world is God doing? You've been there? Listen, if you're alive and your heart is beating this morning and you're awake in this service, you have wondered. (laughs) That last one may be the key. You have wondered. You have wondered, what in the world is God doing? Joseph, the dreamer. So much potential. So much promise. All taken away. Sold into slavery. (laughs) Thrown into prison. What is God doing? God gave him the dreams in chapter 37. Told him, here's here's the course I want you to be on. Confirmed it by giving him two dreams. In the ancient world, that was confirmation. It's going to happen. And yet, what is God doing? Maybe this morning you just need to be reminded that God is faithful, even when you don't understand what God is doing. We see the end of the story, and we have the benefit of the full book of Genesis. Maybe you need that reminder. So Genesis is a story of all that, a story of God's control, a story of God's love and presence in Joseph's life over and over and over. And I love this part. It's when Joseph is facing these impossible circumstances, these evil people. There's one theme that's repeated over and over in the book of Genesis in 37 to 50. The Lord was with Joseph. What a tremendous reminder for the Israelites in the desert. The Lord was with Joseph. Well, (laughs) The Lord was with him, well, by extension, obviously, an implication, the Lord is with us. 
It's a story of his love and presence. It's a story of God's rescue. Joseph rescued from his brothers, rescued from slavery, from prison. Joseph then turning around and rescuing Egypt from famine, rescuing then his family from starvation and extinction. It's an incredible story. Why would they need to hear a story like this in the desert? Surely they were tempted to give up. They had already proved that they'd just soon go back to Egypt and be slaves rather than to starve and die out there in the desert. Maybe you're a person this morning who says, you know what, I am this close, this close to giving up on God. Nobody here would know. Nobody here would suspect you of that. Nobody here would would probably understand, you think. They'd all be shocked. (laughs) But if we were to take a show of hands this morning, and if I were to ask you to be totally honest and say, all right, who is it? And if we, without our filters on, without our fear guiding us this morning, were to lift our hands and say, I'm about this close, I think you'd be surprised. They needed to hear the story because they were about to give up. They needed to hear the story because they were discouraged. Why has God done this? Where is God? They needed to hear the story because they were facing dark nights several years until they could anticipate any fulfillment of God's promise. They needed to hear the story because they thought God had forgotten them. He was silent, despised them, they thought. And so Moses, their great leader, provides them with a written record of God's work in their history. They needed to be challenged, so he spoke up. They needed to be convicted, and so he was bold. They needed to remember what God had done. You realize that from Genesis through Deuteronomy, there are at least 15 different times where Moses tells the people, remember what God has done. Remember. Why? so they could recognize what God was currently doing. Remember what God has done to recognize what God is currently doing. This week, I sent, uh, sent an email. I was, I was gone, so I couldn't do it personally. But I sent an email to, to those who are on our, our email list, and if you're not, that's no problem. Don't feel left out. But it was my only means of communication this week, and I couldn't do anything else. And I asked for responses to two questions. Where have you seen God at work in the past? And where do you see God at work now? God at work stories. Let me read you a sampling of some of the stories that came not from the newspaper, not from a book that I read, but from our church. Here's a God at work story. I received an unexpected and good report on my sister-in-law. Only prayer and God's healing can help a cancer patient who's been given such little chance. Now the doctor is giving us all kinds of... One person mentioned a dear church member who would have left us long ago without the grace of God keeping her here with us. Another person wrote and said, he's working my life right now in two areas. And more than that, I probably just don't realize it as much. He's helping me to have the courage to reach out to people that are hurting and need to know the healing power of God. He's teaching me that It oftentimes takes work and effort to find those who need to hear. The opportunity doesn't often just land on your lap. He reminds me that he is in control and I just need to follow, even if he takes me to a place that's out of my comfort area. The other area is in the area of parenting. 
Say, I can relate to this one. <laughs> Currently, I'm an overwhelmed perfectionist. I could have written that myself. Overwhelmed perfectionist. Isn't that great? That's me. And due to this, I felt so inadequate as a parent. You ever feel inadequate for life? <laughs> because it's not something that a human can be perfect in. And through what we've studied in Sunday school, God is showing me that I don't have to be perfect. I just need to learn and do better the next time and then apologize to my children when I've handled it poorly. God is showing me that so many of the things that I thought were priorities really aren't. My job as a parent is to provide a home in which I can teach my children to love God, to fear God, and to serve God. Although I still need the internal pressure to do that perfectly, or still feel rather the internal pressure to do that perfectly, God has shown me that when I mess up, it can be used as a teaching moment for my family. Isn't <laughs> that an incredible lesson? God work. One young lady wrote in about how God has led her to the man she wants to marry. But she says a week or two before we met, he signed on with the Army for four years. And he left Monday for basic training. I have no idea why God led me in this direction, she writes. I never wanted to have the man that I wanted to marry going to the army. I never imagined it for myself. Always felt sorry for the women who had to go through it. I believe God has a reason and plan for everything. I just haven't figured it out yet. Are you there? I know God's working, but I'm not sure what the end is. Appreciate the honesty. Another church member. I've always felt God's hand in my life. Perhaps the most recognizable force has been in my career. I've had several changes along the way that have seemingly come out of nowhere, but I see it as God's work. I suppose the biggest thing in my life that, that what I consider a miracle was when my son was hit by a car and was in a coma for 13 days. We were given no hope. <laughs> and one day he just woke up. God at work. Another person wrote of a vocational journey. A family who recently returned to Murray after several years away. Dilemma over potential job offers. What to do? Which one to take? He writes this, I had a promotion on the table in my current job. More responsibility, more money, but increased hours and increased stress. I prayed about what to do, and several Christian men warned me not to take that promotion. Ultimately, I turned down the job since it's what I felt led to do. And a couple of months later, a position opened up here in Murray. Again, I prayed and asked others for counsel. Personally, I couldn't turn down the chance to move my family back. I prayed to God that if he didn't want me to take the position, to take it from me. It was down to the final two candidates, and I was one of them. I lost out on the position and was informed from my current boss that I, I didn't get the job. I, I remember thanking God for not putting me in the situation to do something he didn't want me to do. Isn't that amazing? I was at peace and figured God still had a purpose for me where we were. Three days later, I got a call from the company at Murray asking if I would still accept the job. Their primary candidate had refused their offer, and they were extending it to me. So here we are today in Murray. <laughs> I don't know if it was a trial of heart or some other test of faith, but that situation has really stuck with me. In the midst of extremely difficult times, one person wrote, what I'm learning is that God is not required to be as I thought he was. <laughs> he only restricts himself to being as he has said he is. Another per person wrote that life has recently felt like living out that footprints in the sand poem. There are many, many times when God has carried me and continues to carry me 
And when it gets just too hard to do it on my own, she goes on to cite the presence of God she felt after the deaths of two very close family members. God at work. I don't read those stories for effect. I read them because that's God at work here. Not somewhere out there. Not some great story you read, even overseas, but God at work in the nitty-gritty of life here at Elm Grove. This morning, I hope that somehow channeling my inner Moses, I can challenge and call us this morning to remember what God has done. Maybe you're the Israelites, or one of them, in the desert. And maybe, maybe, I could stand in the place of Moses this morning and just call you to remember what God has done. And one step beyond that, to recognize what he is currently doing. I praise God that he didn't stop working in Genesis. I praise God that the story of the Israelites continues. The story of of God's control and his plan for humanity is traced throughout the entirety of Scripture. The story of Joseph, of course, as we fast forward and we follow the threads, winds up in the story of Jesus, who's the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises made to the nation of Israel. Through Jesus, we're offered forgiveness and salvation in spite of our failings. Through Jesus, we are rescued from the penalty and the power of sin. Through Jesus, we receive unconditional love, the very presence of God in our lives. Through Him, we are preserved and we are defended as we face the attacks of life. Through Jesus, we can face the wilderness, the disillusionment, the isolation, the seeming abandonment, rejection, fear, and even death. We can face it all with His presence and His hope. This morning, maybe you're a person who needs to receive the love and forgiveness of Jesus for your sins. You say, what must I do to receive the forgiveness and presence of the Lord Jesus in my life, to receive eternal life, to be released from the penalty and the power of sin? The Bible in the New Testament makes it very simple and very clear uses two words that sort of sum it all up. Repent and believe. Repent to turn from sin. Believe to trust in Jesus. It's all encompassed really in the same mindset and attitude and belief. But to repent, <laughs> it's over. I lay it down. I confess it. And I believe in Jesus as my hope for salvation, the Son of God through whom we must receive salvation. If you've got your bulletin handy, some of you are extremely frustrated right now because there are no fill-in-the-blanks on your bulletin this morning. And I hate to tell you, but I did that on purpose. But if you'll look at it, there's blank space. Because I can't answer those questions for you. I can't answer with much clarity and confidence as you can. How has God worked in your life? 
can't answer that. You can. I can't answer how exactly is God working now in your life. I, I get glimpses, but I don't know. What's he doing? Where has God worked in spite of your failings? <laughs> if you see that blank space and you say, you know what, in spite of what I've done, I've seen God work in this area. I've seen God come through. I've seen his faithfulness over and over. How has God worked? Well, listen, if you're a person who's come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you've got a great story of how God has worked. To rescue you from sin, to forgive you, give you eternal life. Don't forget what God has done. How has he worked in your life in spite of impossible circumstances? What's he overcome? How has he worked in spite of evil people? They certainly exist in our world today, even in Murray, even in Callaway County. Certainly not here in Elm Grove. But even out there somewhere, boy, those people who are out to get you, boy, they're there, aren't they? How has God worked in spite of all that? Those who would conspire against you? How has God worked even in spite of you not understanding what he's up to? What if you were to list this morning, how has God worked in my life? What would you write down? Would it take you some time to think about it, maybe? Would you say, man, I, you didn't give me enough space. And then where is he working now? What story in your life is he currently writing? It's not a story about you. It's a story about him. What story of his faithfulness is he currently writing? What story of his control in your life is he currently writing? What story of his love and his presence is he currently writing? What story of rescue and deliverance and preservation is he currently writing in your life? I would love to be able to challenge you this morning to write all that down. I really would. Moses wrote it down for the Israelites so they could remember what God had done and recognize what he was currently doing and where he was taking them. And I fear that if you let this sermon go in one ear and out the other, and you think, well, that, that sounds nice, but, you know, that, that's sort of elementary. Do you really have to write anything down? I fear that if you do that, then you'll forget what God has done. You won't recognize what, what he's currently doing. And you'll stay in the wilderness with the same feelings of abandonment, of discouragement, of disillusionment. And you might go to your grave in the wilderness not having remembered or recognized what God has done and what he is doing. What a miserable, miserable existence it is to not recognize God at work in your life. So write it down. Take time to write down this morning the answers to those questions. And I mean that. If that means you just sit there during the closing song and you keep on writing, then you just keep on writing. Or maybe this morning during our closing song, you, you say, I've got to tell somebody. I, I'm not real good at writing it all down. I can't, but I need to tell somebody. I'll be standing right down here in just a few minutes. I'd love to be able to hear and receive the mutual encouragement that comes from hearing What's God done in someone else's life? What is he currently doing? I'd love to hear it. Or maybe you're the person who says, you know what? I've got to work through that. And your time with the Lord this next week would be answering those two questions. Allowing him to bring reminders and evidence of where he has worked 
and where he is working. As we sang earlier, we serve a great God. One who has saved us and rescued us from the clutches of sin, given us eternal life through Jesus Christ. And the story that's written in Scripture and the story that's written in our lives is not a story about us. It's a story about Him. His work, His faithfulness, His victory. What has God done? And what is he doing? The Israelites needed a reminder of all that. And I got a feeling we do too. In just a moment, we'll pray. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't ask Randy or Danny earlier, but I think this will, will probably be okay. And if not, I hope we don't make a scene uh, out of this. <clears throat> but I, I'd like for us to end on a note of praise to God. We sing how great is our God right before I came to preach. And I'd love to bookend that this morning. And just, we'll change things up. It's all right if we do that. And I'd just like to close with that song. That little, that, that chorus that just reminds us of what God is doing. Who He is. How wonderful He is in spite of everything we face in life. So let me pray, and then our guys will come, and we'll, we'll sing that song as we close. Maybe you'd like to tell me in just a minute what God has done, what He's doing. I'd love to hear it. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the story that we see in Scripture. We thank You to be able to recognize that the Israelites in the desert needed such a reminder of Your faithfulness and Your work. And Lord, we do too. So Lord, help us to, to honestly and diligently answer those questions this morning and this week. What has God done? Where has He been at work? And, and Lord, where are you still working? We thank you that you have never stopped. The story of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that story continues today. I pray, Lord, we'd remember and we'd recognize. In Jesus' name, amen.